Natinol has contributed to medical device industry and the society's health in general a lot. My suggestions to students is to read some books and papers on the basic mechanism of nitinol, how it's made, what are the crystal structure of different phases, martensides versus austenite, why that transition temperature is important, and also study the superelasticity of nitinol. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to the It's a Material World podcast. I'm your host, Puni. I'm joined by my co-host, David. What's new, David? I know it's been so, so long since we've last recorded an episode. That's a great question, Puni. <laughs> yeah, again, uh, it's only been another day or so. So again, not much has happened. It hasn't even been the weekend yet. So I <laughs> haven't had a chance to do anything too fun, unfortunately. Has anything changed your world in the past day? No, I mean, for maybe our, our YouTube viewers, my background's a little bit different. I'm just getting some, I was surprised with some HVAC work in, in my own apartment. So um, <laughs> nothing was wrong. Like my furnace is, was good. They're just upgrading it, I guess. But everything's all good. You know, I think it should be wrapped up by the end of today. So we're good on that end. And nothing really has, has shifted since then. So we can just kind of get into the, the episode, the topic today, which was particularly fascinating for me where we went into shape memory alloys specifically we talked about nitinol of course and its applications in the medical device space and you know having that medical device background and interest it was just really cool hearing kind of the how the microstructure affects the processing affects the performance affects all the properties kind of that you know msc tetrahedron that we discussed and just kind of cool hearing what's next for this space, um, specifically with nitinol innovation and its application. So I just wanted to hear if you wanted to highlight anything in particular that stood out to you. Yeah, I'm not super familiar with the space unlike you. So I was really just curious to hear about kind of the length scale that we're talking about. So I think that in my head, I can think of what Nitinol does. And I think I've seen videos of bigger things, but then trying to imagining happening on like a millimeter to a few hundred micron scale is just like a completely different thing. And so I thought that was really interesting when he walked us through that. I think he's also very experienced. So he was able to tell us more about what it takes to create a product and kind of how that is a very long and arduous process and how as you keep on going further, you have less room for changes and so how that influences the design. And really the takeaway there was just that metallurgists and material scientists are extremely important from day one to save time and money later down the road so that you don't have to keep on iterating on your material choice. So I just was really fascinated to hear about the importance and then also like kind of the amazing technology that we can create. That's good advice to kind of maybe bring more confidence to early career professionals or MSc students, right, of just that level of importance. Like maybe it's magnified on in the medical device field because product development times can range to up to 10 years, right? And so it is a lot easier to make those material changes very early on versus later on. And, you know, there's a lot of material development and innovation that can happen over a 10-year span. So that's why it's important for materials engineers to kind of enter all of these different fields is because you can save a company a lot of money by addressing some of those concerns right off the bat and helping with refining that material selection very early on. So yeah, we get into 
all kinds of really cool stuff around Night Null. So before we get into it, we would just really appreciate if you could leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. Really helps promote this podcast to an even bigger audience in the material science field. So without further ado, let's get into it. Hello, everyone. For today's episode, I'm happy to introduce Dr. Habib Alavi, Senior Materials Engineer at Cook Medical, which is a company catering to open surgery physicians and related medical devices. Dr. Alavi earned his Bachelor's in Material Science and Engineering in the Ceramics Engineering Track from IKIU in 2006. At the University of Tehran, Dr. Alavi performed research in the area of surface treatment processes involving plasma and electrolytes as part of his master's in metallurgy and materials engineering for his degree in 2009. He then continued to surface engineering focused research on laser materials interactions in his PhD at Oklahoma State University in 2018 and in his thin film coding development work as a postdoctorate associate at Boston University. Since he has joined Cook Medical, Dr. Alavi has contributed his extensive metallurgy knowledge to help evaluate and launch novel medical devices, particularly involving nitinol, a shape memory alloy. Dr. Alavi, thank you so much for joining us today. We're excited for the conversation. Thank you for the introduction. I'm also excited. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. And I think this is a particularly relevant episode for me. I'm also in the medical device space uh, working at Boston Scientific. So we might have a lot to dive into here. And to start out, we'll take it back to 2020, actually the year where we started this podcast. And that year saw a record-breaking number of uh, novel medical devices approved by the FDA. Um, and as we see kind of safer and more effective alternatives driving the demand for innovation and making improvements on, in particular, open surgery devices, could you just give us a picture of how long it takes to launch a novel medical device into the market and how your role as a material scientist, how does that factor into the process? Sure. It's, it's a very good question. Time duration from the submission to the approval, it really depends on what category of medical devices you choose. FDA normally categorize it to three different categories, class one, uh, class two, and class three. So I would say it takes probably from one week to around one year for that submission, depending on which category, you know, the device belongs to. And I know, obviously, this is going to be very dependent from company to company, but what does that like product development process look like, you know, just from personal experience, right? Like just being able to be kind of a reviewer for some some products that are in development. I know that's a long process, a lot of design reviews, right? And a lot of testing to make sure it's safe and performing adequately within the human body. You know, there's a lot of standards and regulations you need to meet. So can you just shed some light into how long that product development process takes? Sure. Everything starts from idea. So if you have an idea on a paper, then you have to gather right people to make that idea feasible or you know turn it to the product. I would say from idea all the way to final submission, it's going to take from two to three years all the way to 10 years sometimes for that medical device to, to be a final product. It normally starts with prototype and then it shifts to different testings from verification and validation type taste testings. And after those, those are done, 
and the testings done then normally goes to the trials, animal trials and the clinical human trials. And after those, after you know all the results are good and positive, then it goes to the submission. So it's a very long process, but it's necessary, you know, to make sure that the device is safe for the patients and it does what we intended to to do. I'm very interested. So let's say, like you said, it takes 10 years for idea to actual like production. I'm sure a lot of things can change in 10 years, such as materials, like what we're using, the most up-to-date alloy, et cetera, for the entire process. Is it possible to make slight tweaks or what is the wiggle room as you go through this entire process for when you have to restart completely or if you can make a slight tweak and then continue along with the process? Oh, that's a very, very good question. In the medical device industry, when we have an idea or we are going to develop a new medical device, which uh, we design, we do it on the design control environment. So, depending on what the tweak is or what the change is and where you are in that process, it can be very easy or it can be very difficult to do that. If we have a design freeze then even some minor changes are going to be very difficult. You have to go back in that design process or in that stage and, you know, do, if not all, most of the testings. So depending on what that minor change or tweak is, if it's my, sorry, if what that change is, is it minor or major, then it's uh, you have to choose different routes for, for that tweak. Yeah, definitely. It seems like that the cost of making that change, whether it's in terms of resources or, you know, actual money, it's a lot less earlier on in the process, right? Versus later on when you've had those design reviews, human use reviews, etc. I'm curious, as you mentioned, like for very novel devices where there's not really like a predicate product that's out in the field, you know, that's probably where the timelines can be longer, like that seven to 10 year mark. I just am curious. I know there's no way of actually knowing this, but do you see there being like a number of devices where, you know, a team was working on developing the product, but then someone beat them to it, you know, a competitor beat them to it and they kind of had to fold the product entirely or really shift paths in a meaningful way? Yeah, sometimes that happens. Engineers, they come up with uh, similar ideas and depending on how many resources each company has, you know, the time to reach to their final goal may vary. But I don't think that's a disadvantage. I, I, I think that's an advantage to everybody. You know, if more companies and more teams are working on similar ideas, I think the final product would be better for the patients. I think we've talked generally about what these surgical devices are and the design process, but I'm not sure the general public is too familiar with the entire line. Could you give like a brief overview and maybe more specifically, what surgical devices are you helping to develop and how do they engage during surgery? Sure. Cook Medical, the, the company that I'm working with, has around 600 plus medical devices from needles, wire guides, catheter stents and uh, kidney snow removers. There's a wide variety of, you know, products that are out there. Me, personally, as a metallurgist for this company, I am fortunate to be able to contribute to most of these devices because at least half of these devices have a metallic component that sometimes needs my, you know, contribution to those lines. 
Habib, can you go into some of those metallic components and why we use those components just in a brief overview before we maybe dive into more specifics? Sure. I mean, the main factor of selecting a metallic alloy in medical device industry is compatibility. You know, obviously the device or that alloy has to have some mechanical performance uh, or mechanical properties, but the main one is biocompatible. If the material is not biocompatible, it doesn't matter how many other good attributes the material has. Uh, because at the end of the day, you wanted to implant that or the device is going to be in touch or in contact with the patient. So we, have, we wanted to make sure that it's biocompatible. How early in the process are you involved? And then also when you do get involved, what is like the number one question that they ask you? I just want to understand more from a job perspective, what to expect if someone would be interested in this type of work. Sure. From very, very beginning, from the selection of a right alloy, because you imagine if you have a design, if you have an idea, you design it, you prototype it, you test it. But if you don't choose a right alloy, at the beginning, then you have to redo all those tests uh, and it's just going to be a waste of time, energy and money. So I'm involved uh, from a very beginning of that idea development of, okay, what options we have for different components from material point of view. And so I know one of maybe more popular materials that we study, I guess, in terms of the medical device applications as material scientists is nitinol because of its shape memory and super elasticity properties. I'm just curious how nitinol became popular. You know, obviously it's not the only alloy, not even the only shape memory alloy. So can you just give us an understanding of the history of nitinol in the medical device space? Because I know, you know, we've done an episode on nitinol before too. And one kind of key thing to focus on is that sometimes the processing can be challenging, right? And it can be, they can get expensive as well. So if you can just kind of share why exactly maybe there is that good fit with nitinol and some medical devices, not all. Sure. Nitinol is a very unique material. I always uh, tell my colleagues, whenever you think you know nitinol, you're wrong. There is always something else <laughs> about the nitinol that, you know, it can surprise you. Uh, nitinol stands for Nickel Titanium Novel Ordnance Laboratory. Novel or uh, Naval Ordnance La Laboratory is where the nitinol was first discovered in 1960s. As you mentioned, nitinol is not the only shape memory alloy, but the reason that nitinol is by far the most popular one, especially in the medical device industry, is its corrosion resistance and biocompatibility. Again, biocompatibility is very important here. And nitinol has shown, because it has a very good corrosion properties, so it's very biocompatible with human body. That's why nitinol is very popular and also, there has been a lot of research and studies from 1950s and 60s on the nitinol, and most of its properties and uh, behaviors are studied. So it's easier for engineers to, to design a device with those resources in mind with nitinol rather than other shape memory alloys. I'm curious about the corrosion resistance, as you mentioned, and its kind of biocompatibility properties, if they go hand in hand, you know, because I know like TIE-64, right, titanium vanadium, 
alloy that's known for its biocompatibility, and that's why it can be used in various medical applications. So I was wondering if it's the titanium, if it's the nickel, if it's both, because I'm trying to just remember back to my metallurgy classes, I believe maybe both of them can have some corrosion resistance properties. And again, does that help in, in terms of determining if it's biocompatible or not? Oh, that's a very good question. Uh, they go hand by hand. You know, if the material is having a very good corrosion resistance, the chance that it's biocompatible is high, basically. But uh, the corrosion resistance of nitinol uh, is more related to the oxide layer forming around uh, and around the external layer of nitinol and that oxide layer is mainly made of uh, titanium oxide. So titanium oxide forms very rapidly. And sometimes, you know, we introduce titanium oxide as a protective layer uh, with different, you know, methods here, uh, which uh, contributes to its high corrosion resistance and also biocompatibility. So these surgical devices come in direct contact, if not even implanted into the human body. I'm just curious what the mechanical stresses of these devices undergo and how a nitinol with a shape memory alloy can kind of handle the load and make sure that it doesn't fail under stress. Sure. So medical devices can be in contact with the patient for a very short amount of time, like a needle, you can imagine for probably a minute, maybe, you know, a little bit more, all the way to be implant for permanent, you know, as long as the patient lives, the medical device is going to be in, in contact with, with the patient. But nitinol not only has a shape memory alloy properties, has another property called pseudoelasticity or superelasticity. So if you imagine another metallic alloy in industry, stainless steel, it's biocompatible, it's great, but the elastic behavior of that is very limited. But the nitinol can withstand up to 6 to 8%, sometimes 10% elastic recovery. That's why it's super elastic. And when we design medical device that needs that type of elasticity like kidney stone removal. So you imagine you have a basket that goes around a stone and you capture it. So the device, the stone may experience a high amount of elastic deformation and you want that elastic deformation. You don't want a plastic deformation, which is permanent. So nitinol or basically medical device industry uses that property of nitinol for its advantages in different designs. So it's not just shape memory alloy, it's super elastic property that also contribute to nitinol being popular in medical devices. Can you give us an overview of maybe some other applications within the medical device space where nitinol may be used? Because you mentioned the super elasticity, right? And so I think one of the things that goes hand in hand with that is the fact that that can help advance through tortuous anatomy without piercing any blood vessels, right? And being able to kind of navigate throughout the body. So I just wanted you to share any other applications that can that can be used for it. Sure. I think the most famous application of nitinol in medical devices using a self-expanding stents. So stents, for me as an engineer, to imagine what a stent is, I think it's like a piping. So stent, so if you have blood vessels as a pipe, and sometimes because some illness, some, uh, you know, some issues with that blood vessels, those blood vessels cannot behave like they intended to. You know, some occlusion 
happening or the blood vessel loses its properties. So the stent, what it does, it goes to that area of the blood vessels and keeps those walls from collapsing. So if the stent is made of stainless steel, for example, so imagine the doctor or the, inter uh, the surgeon has to go to that area with different methods and put the stent in place and then have to use the balloon to expand the stent to whatever diameter he or she has in mind. So that's for the stainless steel. But nitinol can use so the, the medical device can, uh, industry can use the, the shape memory effect of nitinol for disadvantages. So that's why self-expanding comes in play. So the surgeon does all the same procedure, goes to the vessel, but as soon as the stent touches the blood, which is, is a body temperature around 98F or 37 degrees C, the stent goes to its original shape. An original shape is the shape that the engineer has designed and he treated to be able to reach that original shape. So I think that one of the most unique application of the nitinol is in the stents, the self-expanding stents, and which I found it very interesting. Two questions. The first one is, is nitinol's heat where it starts to regain its shape, being able to be tuned for different applications? And then two, I guess just for me, I know you guys are both in the medical device space. I'm not quite sure what size scale we're talking about when you're talking about the blood vessel. Are we talking about like microns or centimeters? Really don't know how large these stents grow up to. So I'm interested to hear about that. Very, very good question. So I'm going to start with the first question. Heat treatment. So the transition temperature of nitinol. So there are multiple transition temperature, but the, the transition temperature that the medical device engineers are interested are called A sub F or authentic finish temperature in which that you want to make sure the device is in fully austenitic form. So that temperature can be tweaked with different heat treatment or different cold work percentage of your devices. So devices are, for example, if it's a wire during the wire drawing, you have certain amount of cold work in the wire, which you can use as the advantage to tweak that temperature. So you wanted to make sure A sub F or the transition temperature of your devices below body temperature because you can deform it, make sure it's in the austenite form, you load it to the delivery system, and then as soon as it comes to contact with higher temperature, in this case, body temperature, it goes to whatever size you had in mind. Regarding the size, we are uh, the distance that we are dealing with are normally in the range of few millimeters all the way, if you are dealing with the artery, all the way to few centimeters. However, recently, I have seen companies that are working with to develop a stance that goes to, to your brain or the vessels in your brain that are sub-millimeter range. That's incredible. Because David, I think like one thing that was fascinating to me, like just, you know, seeing our devices, being able to kind of play with them, they're, like Habib said, on the millimeter scale, but there's so much really like fine-tuned engineering that's going on to be able to kind of do pressure readings or ultrasound imaging, you know, kind of gathering that signal as well. So it's really cool to see that happening on the millimeter scale. And like Habib is now talking about, now potentially sub-millimeter. So really fascinating stuff. 
I'm curious, before we kind of dive into the failure analysis of Night Null and the characterization of that that type of material, you mentioned the austenizing finishing temperature and being able to tweak that. What is kind of that range if there is a natural AF temperature and what is the range that you can change it by doing various heat treatments or oil treatments? So if we consider the chemical composition change as one of the factors that we can control, because uh, nitinol is very sensitive to chemical composition, even to 0.1%. So it has to be exactly, you know, controlled. But if we consider that as a parameter that we can change, I have seen nitinols from minus 100C all the way to around 80, 90 degrees C range for the A sub of temperature, transition temperatures. Obviously, those extremes are not very applicable in medical device industry. They are more applicable in the cryogenic applications when you have a very low temperatures or uh, you have very high temperatures. But I have seen those ranges available, you know, in the market for nitinol products. So let's now move on to the failure analysis of nitinol. Um, I know that just given its properties and and potentially, you know, uniqueness, it can be very different from in a common industrial metal like stainless steel, which we've done some comparisons before in this episode. So could you maybe describe the types of characterization that equipment that we use, characterization methods to do some failure analysis? You know, if there is something that happens in the field that we need to look at, can you just kind of go over what that looks like and why those characterization methods can be particularly useful? Sure. Again, going back to mechanical properties of nitinol, another reason nitinol is uh, popular is its fatigue performance. So imagine medical device or a stent in the body that is permanent, and it has to go through a lot of fatigue cycles. So blood pressure, you know, systolic, diastolic, and you have a pulsatile, you know, load on your stent. And you know, every minute you have around 60 to 80 of them. So you have to keep that in mind when designing the nitinol. Nitinol is very good in areas that can have a lot of fatigue cycles. One of the tests that we perform on our medical devices, especially stents, is called pulsatile fatigue. So we expose them to, uh, you know, many, many millions of millions of cycles to intentionally break them to make sure that they perform under those conditions in the patient's body. For failure analysis, after performing those tests that resulted in failure, we normally use a scanning electron microscope. Again, going back to the size that David asked, uh, nitinol stents are in the millimeter to uh, centimeter range, but the features, those struts of nitinol are in micron ranges. So we need equipment or a microscope that can go to higher magnification with a good resolution to be able to see the features on the fracture surfaces. So a scanning scanning electron microscope, as you can imagine, is a very good instrument for us to be able to use to study the fine features on this fracture surface of the device to see if the fracture was solely due to fatigue or it was a combination of fatigue and overloading. Sometimes, again, 
back to Nitinol. Nitinol is very sensitive to inclusion. So we wanted to keep the inclusion in Nitinol as low as possible because inclusion can act as crack initiation areas. So with the scanning electron microscope, we can also uh, confirm that the crack started in the, where the inclusions are or not. Can you just briefly define inclusion? It seems like it's a key part of like a fractography of a nitinol device. So can you just briefly explain what that is? Sure. Inclusion uh, are normally oxide or carbide particles. You can imagine oxide and carbides are ceramic. They are in the metallic matrix, which is compliant, but the ceramic particles, they are not. So they kind of disturb the homogeneity of that matrix. So and they are very brittle and, and very hard. That's why they are crack initiation areas when you when you have inclusion. And when you have too much inclusion, the fatigue performance of your of your material goes down. What would you say is the main material property that still needs to be improved upon in the space? Or where do you see innovation heading? I believe it's gonna be manufacturing of uh, low inclusion nitinol for for high fatigue performance because again implants they're going to be in the body as long as the patient lives so you wanted to make sure they have a very good fatigue performance so i believe it's still uh, controlling the inclusion the size of the inclusion and the amount of inclusion it's very very critical when you're testing for like that fatigue performance of nitinol, like, do you see in terms of if there's quote unquote failures or needs to replace uh, a stent or something similar? Like, is it usually because of its fatigue performance? Like, I'm just trying to get more context as to why compared to, I guess, you know, average length of a human life, like where the general fatigue performance is, why there is that need to improve that specific material property in terms of the innovation of, of stents moving forward. Yeah, for, for example, if we design a material for a year, you know, if you have that in my mind that, that this, this medical device is going to be used in a year versus permanent implant, which is going to be in use in the range of 10 to 40 years, depending on, you know, how long it's going to be in the in the body, then fatigue performance, it's going to be different, you know, from low cycle fatigue to a high cycle fatigue. And with that in mind, we design and also where in body that medical devices is a pulsatile or is axial or a combination of them or bending fatigue. For example, if it's in the uh, knee area, you know, other, so, so if you have a stent that goes to the knee area, so we have a pulsatile coming from blood pressure, but also we have bending because the patient needs to, to move and the knee joint uh, has a bending, you know, movement as well. So we have to have that, that type of fatigue mode as well in mind when we design. In my mind, when we're talking about implants in the body, I think that the user is also going to have a great effect on the amount of fatigue you go through. I guess from your side, do you actually see like someone with high blood pressure or someone who's more active fatigues to a much greater? Or is it kind of generalized and average to we're all doing about the same fatigue over the course of, let's say, a year? 
Uh, no, that's a very good question. When we test uh, the devices, we try to test to the extreme. We try to find, okay, what is the worst case out there? And when, then we apply a safety factor on top of that. Then we test uh, the fatigue for, or any other test for that matter. Transitioning now to the manufacturing of nitinol, you know, we've just heard in the past that there is certain challenges, at least when you compare to uh, maybe stainless steel, right? And maybe there's the factors of time in terms of, you know, how many years have there been in developing these production and manufacturing processes? Can you just go into maybe some of those challenges that we face when manufacturing nitinol and potentially even like price comparisons as well? Sure. There are a handful of nitinol manufacturers in the United States, but there are if not hundreds, but there are few tens manufacturer of stainless steel. So you can see a difference of to be able to manufacture nitinol, you need to have a very specialized, unique uh, equipment. Nitinol is normally manufactured with a method called VIM, and so which stands for vacuum induction melting or vacuum arc remelting. So the reason for that is when you melt nickel and titanium, you have to control the atmosphere that they, uh, they are in contact with at high temperature because you want it to avoid oxygen to react with those elements at high temperature. Again, that goes back to inclusion. You want it to reduce the inclusion as much as possible. So with those specialized type of melting at vacuum, you know, they manufacture or melt big chunk of nitinol. And then after that, it goes to, you know, downstream to other, you know, manufacturing steps to, if it's a wire, then it goes to the billet, then it's been drowned to wire or it's tube, it's drowned to the tube. You know, that depends on what's the final application of the nitinol. But to start, you need a very high vacuum atmosphere to make sure that the oxygen is uh, eliminated as much as possible. Is nitinol to changes in microstructure? Like how does that influence maybe a change in, in its performance? And is that difficult to maintain the quality of when it comes to processing and all the steps that come into creating the finished good for nitinol? Good question. It's a very, very sensitive. So nitinol, the most common type of nitinol that is used is made of nickel and titanium. And it's uh, roughly 50-50 nickel and titanium. But for every 1% change in the chemical composition, the transition temperature changes 100 degrees. So you can imagine that you have to be really controlling how much of each of those material goes to melt to make sure that you're controlling the chemical composition and consequently you're controlling the, the transition temperature. Well, thank you so much for this great conversation. Maybe just to wrap up, we think that the material in all itself is extremely fascinating. It has ample areas for further study. We would love to hear about any advice you would give for students who are hoping to specialize in the study of nitinol material properties or even metallurgy in general. I believe nitinol is a very unique metallic alloy. From its discovery till today, you see a lot of research papers on nitinol, but that's not the only unique part. You, you see a lot of product that's 
being manufactured from those ideas now in the market. With nitinol nowadays, we can make the stents very, very small. We can load them to the very smaller catheters so we can access to the smaller vessels. So nitinol has contributed to medical device industry and the society's health in general a lot. My suggestions to students is to read some books and papers on the basic mechanism of nitinol, how it's made, what are the crystal structure of different phases, Martin versus Austinot, why that transition temperature is important, and also study the superelasticity of nitinol. If they can get their hand on nitinol, I think it's very fun to play with, you know, Every time that I play with the nitinol here with the wires, it amazes me how it behaves like a rubber, which is not something intuitive for me because I've, I've worked with the stainless steel aluminum. They have some elasticity, but not like nitinol. So if you out there, if you have access to nitinol, you know, just go and, and play with it. Put it in the low temperature water, ice water, deform it, heat it up and see how it goes back to its original shape. Nowadays, YouTube is very, very good resource. There are many, many YouTube videos about nitinol that, uh, that they have been deformed, but when they are heated by a torch or a lighter, it goes back to its original shape. I think those are fun to watch as well. Yeah, definitely. Those videos are, are a lot of fun. So thank you so much, Habib, for, for joining us today. We really appreciate you sharing your insights into night and all the medical device space and metallurgy in general. It was awesome having you and it was a really fun discussion. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed our conversation. As a materials engineer, we can make an impact in nearly every single industry. But with that versatility comes a lot of options to choose from. So if you have no idea which position or industry is right for you, you're not alone. I've been there, done that. But just for a moment, imagine narrowing down your ideal role and company within the week. Imagine being able to secure your dream offer without having to apply to hundreds of job openings. Our online course, MSE Academy, includes video testimonials, resumes, interview prep, and mentorship from materials engineers who have been in your shoes. We also connect our members with companies and industry professionals in our expansive network to help accelerate your job search process as much as possible. To learn more and get started, simply click the link in the show notes below. And if you enroll within the next 24 hours, we'll add three bonus career-related resources. I hope to see you there.